In God's Company. I'm Peter Lupson, author of the book In God's Company, about seven Christian giants of business who established world famous brands. Today, you'll hear the story of William Hartley, whose jam is still the most popular in the UK 150 years after he started production. I'm going to open with two quotes by William Hartley. They capture the twin dimensions of his life the businessman and the Christian. And this is what he told his employees. He said, We have great competition. And the house that makes the best article at the most reasonable price should win. I want us to be that house. Now, when he said those words, he meant it. He established Hartley's as the leading brand of jam in the UK during his lifetime. And millions of these are sold daily, not only in the UK, but across the world. And、uh, the brand he established is still. The market leader. The second dimension is the Christian, and his business aspirations were firmly balanced by a much deeper desire. And this was, and I quote, to serve the Lord every day to the best of my ability. And in this talk, I'm going to try and show you how he combined those two dimensions. Well, some biographical details first. His name, full name was William Pickles Hartley. Nothing to do with his products. Pickles was his mother's maiden name. And in Victorian England, a lot of boys adopted the mother's maiden name as their middle name. He was born 23rd of February 1846, that's a hundred years before me, which is a nice year to remember, in Colne, Lancashire. Colne, if you haven't heard of it, C O L N E, is six miles northeast of Burnley, and、um, next to it is Nelson. At the time that this man was born, it was a mill town. The whole town was dotted with cotton mills. It was at the heart of the cotton weaving industry. His father, John, was a tinsmith. He made things out of tin. He was also a Methodist preacher. His mother, Margaret, ran a small grocery shop. In the town. He was the only one of their children to survive infancy. He always looked back and was particularly grateful for his Christian upbringing. And I, I read again My parents and grandparents were godly people. I was always under the deepest religious impressions. And he also gratefully acknowledged the influence of his Sunday school teacher, whose character and deep spirituality left a lasting impression on him. As a result of these influences, he declared, I never remember a time when I had not an earnest desire to be good. Thirteen, he became a full member of the Ebenezer Primitive Methodist Chapel. Now, the word primitive sounds a little bit fierce.、Um, it simply meant original. The primitive Methodists were aiming to keep as close to the original roots of Methodism as possible. So, primitive actually means first or original. In time, he became the organist, the treasurer, and a Sunday school teacher there. Now, he was very fortunate that his parents had an enlightened view about education, because at that time, children as young as eight would work in the cotton mills. They would work six and a half hour days, six days a week. 
So Daniel, when you go to Ascoldeirenva at 9 in the morning and finish at 3.30, imagine if that was a cotton mill six days a week. Now, they didn't let him do that. They sent him to school. They could have earned more money if he'd gone out to work. That's why parents sent the children out. It boosted the family income. But they actually sent him to a little junior school, uh, what was called a British school at the time. It was for the, um, the working class. And um, at 13, he transferred to Colne Grammar School, which still stands. When he left school at 14, he started to work in his mother's grocery shop. And within two years, his entrepreneurial instincts surfaced. This man's talent as a businessman surfaced very young. He tried to persuade his mother to take a bigger shop that had become available in the main part of the town. Because he said it had greater potential. You could make more sales there. Now she was horrified at his suggestion. She flatly refused. She was dismayed that he could think in such foolish terms, this sort of ambitious, unreasonable way of thinking. And she was genuinely worried about her son. It wasn't until somebody else from within the church said to her, I think he's got a point, you know, that she relented and went for this bigger shop. And she put him in charge of it. He was now 16. And so at 16, William Hartley was a businessman. Now, it was quickly obvious that he was a good one because he spotted a market niche very quickly. There was no proper refrigeration at the time and the only way you could preserve things was by using salt. So he added a saltery to the shop so that people could either buy ready salted food or they could bring their own and he would salt it for them. And uh, it made a big step forward with the business. But then he saw another opportunity. Because they were selling things to lots of retailers, he thought to himself, what about if I became a wholesaler? If I bought things in bulk and I then sold them on to these other shops? And he started doing this. It meant getting up at five o'clock in the morning, walking across the moors to get orders from customers, and it was a gruelling thing for a young lad to do. And he years later wrote this. I walked to Haworth, Oakworth and to Keithley Station so tired that I was very glad to sit down in the station. I walked about 20 miles. I called on 20 customers. And on many a journey I did not make a shilling. It took a good deal of resolution to keep that up. Well, he did keep that up. But what actually made his name was the reliability of his products. Now you've heard me say before that in this particular period there were no government checks on what went into food. And people who were honest in spite of the fact that you could get away with anything stood out. And people noticed that when he sold them cocoa there was no brick dust in it. When he sold them sugar, there was no ground rice in it. And his weights and measures were always honest. Now, that stood out. It's amazing, isn't it, that somebody is honest. They don't put, what is it, brick dust into your cocoa. And hey, this cocoa tastes different. It 
kind of makes an impression. And so his business flourished. He was only a very young man at this time. 21st of May, 1866, with the security of his strong business behind him, he married his childhood sweetheart, Martha Horsfield. Now, interestingly enough, William was the only one of the children to survive infancy. His wife was the youngest of 13, who all survived. So that was quite an incredible contrast. Now, she turned out to be the perfect wife for William. She had a deep Christian faith. She supported him in all his church and later philanthropic activities. But above all, she had a sharp mind. She had an acute grasp of business. And she eventually became a familiar figure at the works, as much as he was. And she gave him advice, which he always listened to and regarded as valuable. She had a very sharp mind. So she was on his wavelength. In, in a respect, a lot of ways. They had a very long and happy marriage. Well over 50, 56 years, I think it was. By the time William was 25, his business was one of the largest wholesale operations in Lancashire. And it's all been built up on his reputation for fair dealing. But then, there was an unexpected twist of circumstances that propelled his business career in a wholly unexpected direction. His jam supplier had become unreliable. William couldn't depend on him anymore, so he had to get rid of him. But this left him in a difficult position because he knew that many of his customers wanted jam. And he didn't want to disappoint them. It wasn't a question of making money. He genuinely did not want to let these customers down. And so, he decided to start making jam himself so that these people would not go without. And in the summer of 1871, and that's taken, by the way, as the beginning of the Hartley brand, with a workforce of 12, he produced 100 tonnes of jam, which he then made into um, pots and then sold them on. And it was the start of something big. Now, from the very beginning, he was determined that only the best quality would do. There would be no dubious ingredients. Now, what were other jam people doing? Well, they were putting turnips in to boost the weight, because you sold by the weight. And if you put turnips in, you could do it. And sugar was expensive. There was a tax on sugar till I think it was 1874, and that made sugar expensive. So they used to put carrots in because carrot is a sweetener. And also, the taste of carrot, I understand, is absorbed by the fruit that it's merged with. So you can get away with it. And of course, it's much cheaper. And would you believe this? People actually made tiny little chips of wood to replicate the seeds of raspberries. And they would put those into the raspberries. He did none of this. And from start to finish, he scrutinized the manufacturing process to make sure that everything was perfect. He would not let anything go out that was less than perfect. Inevitably, his business rocketed. And within three years, the demand so greatly exceeded supply that it decided to give up the wholesale business and concentrate wholly on jam manufacturing. Now, despite his love for Colne, 
which he never lost and which we'll hear more about later, he needed a location somewhere else that would enable his business to expand. And he needed somewhere that was strategically placed on the railway network so that he could get his things transported. He also wanted somewhere close to the Mersey docks where the sugar refineries were because that would cut down the transportation costs from docks to coal. And the same applied to fruit. He wanted to reduce the transportation costs of fruit that was delivered to him from Spain and elsewhere at the docks. And the locality he wanted, he chose, the place that ticked every box was Bootle. And so he came to Bootle. Well, before he came, there was something that really caused him great pain. He told his family and friends and people at church about his plans. He said, I really want to take this factory to the next level. And the place to do it is in Bootle. And that seemed to make eminently good sense. But the reaction was terrible. People actually said, you are being greedy. Your ambition is unhealthy. This is not godly. You're a Christian. You're not supposed to try and get all this extra money and things. And what are you playing at? And he wrote later, they all believed I was flying in the face of providence and prophesied disaster. Not one person supported him in this intention of expanding his business. And then he wrote, I never felt so alone in all my life. But, despite the lack of support, he felt that this was what he was to do. He felt that this was what his, if you like, calling was. And he went ahead. He was now 28. He and Martha, his wife, and their four daughters left Colne and moved to Park Street in Bootle. And then everything went wrong. Within 12 months, his 19-month-old daughter died and she, her body was actually taken back to the Colne area for burial. And in the business sphere, there were some crushing pressures. He'd invested all his money in the plant in buying the, the actual site and all the things that he needed to put on it, the factory equipment and so on, and didn't have enough left over to buy sugar and fruit. And that meant getting a loan. But they were very hard to come by. The first person that agreed to forward him the money said, I'll do so on condition that you make me a partner in the business. And his wife, Martha, who was very astute in these matters, said, do not go down that route do not get sucked into this relationship with that person. And he took her advice and didn't do it. And the only loan he could get was over seven years at a rate which consumed 75% of his profits. And that was a terrible way to start this new venture. As a result, money was very tight, both at home and in his business and he later recalled our first struggles were severe indeed in spite of all of that he faithfully attended the Bootle Primitive Methodist Church not only that but he actually bought the organ for them 
and he became the organist, which required a lot of time attending all the services and training the choir. Three years into their time in Bootle, during the time of all this struggle and pain, he and his wife made a decision that seemed to defy all logic when you consider the strain on their finances. And this is what he wrote. Probably the greatest event of my life occurred on January the 1st, 1877. On that day, my wife and I made a written vow that we would devote a definite share of our income for religious and humanitarian work. He and Martha resolved that the percentage they would give would increase in proportion to the growth of their income. And they vowed they would never give less than 10%, even if their income plummeted downwards. They would never do less than that. And he said, this decision marked the beginning of the real deep and lasting, genuine happiness of my own Christian life. Now, what moved them to do that? Because they were in the midst of a terrible time. And it's pretty obvious to me that during this dark time, they drew closer to Christ. And when someone asked him, you know, why do you do this? Why do you give this money away? And he said, When we think of the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then nothing we can do is too much. Now, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he recognized that he had a great debt to Jesus. He realized that his and our sinful nature had been crucified on the cross with Jesus. That sinful nature that drags us down makes us do things which we know are wrong but are powerless to stop that sinful nature he realised had been crucified on the cross with Christ and he was set free from its power that's where we get the expression crossed out from something's been crossed out furthermore he also became even more conscious of the fact that as we died with Christ on the cross so we can live a new life united with him in the power of his resurrection and that you can be a new person and enjoy eternal life now that's what he meant by the sacrifice of Christ that he was freed from a nature that he found negative, destructive, downward pulling and he was free to be his real self because he was living in the power of the resurrection through the indwelling Holy Spirit and it was for that reason that he wanted to give something back and he was determined now that his gratitude and indebtedness to Christ was going to be expressed in giving 
to others. But once again in this man's life there are lots of twists and turns. And he found it was not as easy as he thought. He was horrified to find that his natural instinct as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, was to make money, not give it away. And he suddenly found that having made this vow, which he sincerely meant, suddenly he was under attack and he was being challenged as to whether or not he was going to go ahead. And he described the conflict in the following way. The lower self at once asserted its claim and said, I have it and it's mine. But the higher self, if it was in full sympathy with the teaching of Jesus Christ, would rise above the temptation and be ready to share with others. Eventually he was able to say, the more we cultivate the spirit of Jesus Christ, the easier the thing becomes. And what appeared to us quite impossible at the beginning becomes not only possible, but absolutely a joy. And that's what he meant when he said this was the turning point for him where he was released from greed, if you like, and was free to be generous. Anyway, during this period of struggle with himself and with the finances and so on, he never lost sight of his obligation to his customers. He did never ever resort to the temptation of shortcuts. I'm hard up, so I'm now going to put brick dust in the... Well, it's not at this time cocoa, it's jam. I'm not going to put little bits of wood in the raspberry jam. I'm not going to do any of that. He did never, ever get tempted to sink to that level. And he said, our aim has always been to win the confidence of the public by making the best possible article and selling it at a fair price. And on that principle, our business has gone from strength to strength. Well before the seven years of the loan were up, he was in a position to pay it all back. But the lender refused because he didn't want to lose the attractive interest payments. So William was stuck with the seven-year loan, even though he could have got rid of it three or four years earlier. However, such was the reputation of his jam that he managed to not only absorb the 70% loss of income um, of profit to this loan shark, but demand soared so much that an extension had to be built to the factory in Bootle. As he vowed, he shared his good fortune with others. He frequently gave huge sums of money away unconditionally, but he was aware of the fact that people are only too quick to ask for a handout. So he developed a method of giving, which he called challenge offers. In other words, he would donate a specified amount towards a target, providing others pulled their weight and did their bit too. And when he learned in 1884 that the Primitive Methodist Missionary Society was in deep financial trouble, he offered to pay a £1,000 of the society's debt, and that's a fortune today, provided the balance could be raised. And this challenge offer was something new. And people thought, this is good. This is good. Yeah, we'll do it. And they actually raised more than was actually needed. So it was tremendous. 1886, after 12 years of continual growth in Bootle, he'd run out of space to expand further. And another move was needed. 
And he wanted somewhere that was even better situated in terms of the railway lines because he now had so many products to move that he wanted to be able to shift them quickly. And he found an ideal site at the junction of two major railway lines in Aintree. Here, he built one of the largest jam factories in the world. It produced 600 tons of jam a week. 1.3 million earthenware pots were sold a week. And uh, it might interest you to know that a quarter of the world's Seville oranges were shipped to the Aintree factory. So he's already making a massive input in terms of trade. He had a permanent workforce of 800 and that rose to 2,000 in the busy summer season when all the fruit was being picked. And he made sure that fruit that was picked in the morning was jam by the evening so that it was fresh. To ensure the quality of his products he spent very long hours, sometimes 16 hours a day, personally sampling each boiling in these big urn things and inspected up to a thousand jars at a time. He would let nothing go out that was less than perfect. Why so meticulous? Is this OCD? Or what's the motive? He wanted to maintain the quality and the distinctive taste of his jam and any lowering of standards both of those things would suffer and he felt that was not fair to his customers he wanted nothing but the best for them and in fact he did something quite significant the company's trademark was a lighthouse which was a traditional Christian symbol of God's guidance guidance that could be relied upon and trusted and he wanted his customers to know they could trust his products. So he used the Christian symbol of the lighthouse. It's not as easy as you think to maintain standards because not only does it take an awful amount of time but a lot of things can go wrong. And in his case, two things in particular were variable. The weather and his suppliers. Now in terms of the weather... Late frost or too much rain meant a reduced crop. Too little sunshine meant it would ripen slower. And that meant they couldn't start the production process until the stuff was ready. Too large a crop meant wastage because they couldn't process it all fast enough before it deteriorated. And his suppliers were often unreliable. They'd either deliver fruit late or of poor quality. It was either too small not fully ripened or overripe. And that put a lot of pressure on him to try and maintain the standard and the production rate when things were always letting him down. He did suffer from the stress that this caused him. Combined with the day-to-day -day running of the company, he was frequently exhausted, it affected his health, and sometimes he got quite depressed. But he ignored advice to slow down felt he had to have this stuff right. He would not let it go out less than at its best. He did, however, make one major compromise. His jam was selling in the States and over there they said, look, why don't you open a factory over here? We can get a lot more stuff turned out. Bigger turnover, bigger profits. And he said, no. 
because I won't be able to inspect the quality of it. I can't personally ensure I'm happy with what's going out in the name of this company. And so he refused always to open a factory in America. And sales, nevertheless, were still good through export. Whatever the pressures on himself, he made sure they were not passed on to his workers. In fact, he never referred to them as his workers, but as my people. And he said that he always enjoyed, quote, the happiest relations with them. In his treatment of them, he said the following. He always tried to, quote, carry out the teaching of Jesus Christ in the way he treated them. Now, here are some examples. If he noticed a task was physically too demanding, he would ask people who are more informed about these things, what can be done to take the hardness out of this job? Never mind the cost. Make it easier for the workers. When he discovered that a newly delivered batch of trucks had arrived, these are trucks that you loaded with the goods that were pushed on rails, and he found he couldn't push one himself, he said, scrap them. If I can't push them, then they can't. So it's not fair. Scrap them. As women outnumbered men four to one, he looked for every possible means of making their work light and safe. He had tram lines in the factory laid out in gentle gradients so they could easily push the loaded trucks. And he also had sunken pits made for them to stand in so they wouldn't have to bend while they were topping and tailing um, gooseberries or whatever. There was no bending necessary. He also made sure that the factory was well ventilated. They had wholesome, well-prepared food in the dining hall at cost price. No one else was doing this. Um, Workers brought sandwiches or they brought something that they warmed up on on the radiators. But he actually provided fantastic dining hall, it's still there in Aintree and uh, the quality of the food was really good he also made the full time services of a doctor and nurse available free of charge and he established a pension fund which he wholly financed himself no contributions were ever asked from his workforce he also understood the importance of recreation getting away from it all There are many examples of what he did, but one good one is one year he took every employee over the age of 18 on a five-day visit to Scotland. He paid all the hotel and travel costs and they all received full wages while they were away. 1888, two years after he opened the factory, he built a garden village alongside. Now you've all seen Port Sunlight Village, which is amazing. Well, he did something similar, but not on the same scale. The streets were tree-lined, named after ingredients used in jam making, like Sugar Street, Spice Street, and Cherry Avenue. If you go there today, you can still see one or two of these names. Each house had a front garden, and a luxury at the time, running water. Now, in spite of the superior quality of these homes, he insisted that the rent be kept, quote, exceedingly low, as he did not want to make a profit from them. And in 1890, he himself, with his family, moved to a house next door to the factory um, near this village. The following year, he built a Methodist church nearby. It's at the moment, it's still there, it's still a thriving Methodist church. It's opposite the Black Bull. And two of his daughters were married there. That's where they all worshipped. 
Now something quite remarkable and new at the time was he considered his employees equal partners in his business. And he believed he had a moral obligation to share his wealth with them because they helped him create it. And so, in 1889, he introduced a profit-sharing scheme. And he told the employees this, Our interests are mutual. I cannot carry on the business without your cooperation. And I venture to think that in my capacity as your employer, I render some service to you. Now, can you imagine people in big business going up to them and saying, I hope I'm of service to you, you know, the, the president of the company. Am I being of service to you? Are you happy here? You, this is exactly his attitude. Now, other manufacturers heard about this and thought, hey, this sounds interesting. Well, what's the catch? Or there must be some little spin-off in this that we don't know about. We'd like to find out more. So, they came to see him and said, what's the angle? What are you making out of this? Because we're interested. And he told them this. Profit sharing is over and above a fair and just wage. And is given, not because I think it pays commercially, but because it seems to me right and doing as I would be done by. Well, the inquiry showed no more interest. They went. The annual distribution of profits was a major occasion. Music as happy for William as it was for the employees and he told them whatever pleasure it gives you to receive the profit sharing I can say with perfect sincerity that it gives me equal pleasure to hand it to you from time to time he would also increase the wages of his employees without being asked and he also encouraged any employee in financial difficulty to come to him for help and he established a benevolent fund for this purpose. He was always sympathetic to cases of genuine distress, but he made it clear debts incurred as a result of drink or gambling would not be met. Well, his concern for others took him into the political arena and the world of football. He was an active supporter of the temperance movement, which was dedicated to fighting drink and the social misery it caused. He was a member of a number of local temperance organisations and also vice president nationally of the British Temperance League. He was a staunch member of the Liberal Party which supported the temperance cause and he eventually sat as a Liberal councillor on Liverpool Council. And it was through these channels that he came to know members of Everton Football Club's management committee who were also active in the temperance cause and the Liberal Party. In 1891, a crisis arose at Everton and William became involved in it. Members of the management committee clashed with their president, a man called John Holding. He was the owner of the ground. And initially it was over a rental dispute. He wanted them to buy the Anfield Stadium which Everton built and was owned by Everton and they said no we won't buy Anfield from you you're asking a ridiculous price but we'll pay you rent but they couldn't agree over the rental amount and it started to cause friction but what made it worse was that many of the management committee were teetotal they were linked with St. Domingo Church 
which is where Everton were founded, and they disapproved of the fact that their president was a brewer, because that's what holding was. And they objected to the fact that the club's headquarters was the Sandon pub. In addition to that, there was strong political opposition, because Holding was a prominent member of the Conservative Party, which looked after the interests of brewers. So at the time of elections, there was a lot of friction, which added to the tensions that were already there. And finally, Holding decided to expel the Everton Management Committee from Anfield and carry on Everton at Anfield as his club under his name. One of the Everton committee, George Mann, who was the organist at St. Domingo Chapel where the club was formed, appealed to the Football Association, the game's ruling body, and said he cannot take the name Everton. That's legally vested in us who own and, well, who run the club. The FA upheld the appeal and said that Holding will have to choose another name for the club he keeps at Anfield. And he chose Liverpool. And that was 1892, 125 years ago, and it's being celebrated at Liverpool as the 125th anniversary of their birth, and it's being celebrated at Goodison Park at Everton as the 120th anniversary of that stadium. Now, in a moment, we're going to see how William gets involved in this. George Mann, the organist at St. Domingo Chapel, had anticipated that Everton were going to get expelled. And he'd found land the other side of Stanley Park. And money was raised for the building work. But there was one big problem. They were short of £1,000 to ensure the project was completed. That doesn't sound much to us today, but let me tell you, at the time, £1,000 would have paid the wages of the entire first team for a whole year. Now that shows you what sort of money we're talking about. I know they weren't earning the mega bucks of today, but even so, they were earning better than people were in in manual jobs and so on. And if they could not build this ground, then they would no longer be allowed to play in the Football League and they would probably cease to exist as a club. It was a critical turning point that £1,000 was needed. Now, having a great affinity with those who oppose holding... William could not sit back and let this happen. He wanted to do what he could to step in and help Everton. So together with George Mann and ten others, he formed a consortium pledged to supply the crucial shortfall as an interest-free loan without expectation of return if things went wrong. William, in fact, actually pledged the largest single amount of that £1,000. And when this was when the sponsors' names were read out at a big meeting, he received a massive cheer for the amount he was putting in. And to this day, he is heralded as one of the saviours of Everton Football Club. If you are a Liverpool supporter, please do continue buying Hartley's jam. He didn't mean it personally. It was his commitment to the temperance cause that had drawn him into the dispute at Everton But he also showed his commitment in other ways. One of the things he wanted to do was to be positive about offering a counter-attraction to drink. It's well and truly saying, this is naughty, this is bad, you shouldn't do this. But have something as an alternative. And 
He wanted to create a well-equipped community and recreation centre near his works so that people had somewhere to go as an alternative to the pub. And uh, he wanted it to have a concert hall, dining rooms, gymnasium, billiard rooms, bowling greens, tennis court, and all the rest of it. But he wanted it to be more than a private initiative. He wanted to foster a spirit of cooperation between the churches of different denominations. Because he said his dream was of a centre, quote, for everything that was elevating and of a Christ-like character. And he wanted all the churches involved. And he put the idea to a meeting of church representatives and he offered a thousand pounds, you know, wages of the entire first team for a whole year, that amount of money, to get things going. And nobody was interested. Have you noticed how often this man comes up against opposition? Nobody was interested. He tried for another two and a half years to get support. No success at all. So in the end, he decided to go it alone. And he funded the entire project and it opened as the Aintree Institute. And it remained a recreation facility until 2007 when it was pulled down. One little interesting aside, it has a close association with the Beatles. Prior to the release of their first record, they played there 52 times as the resident band at Jive Evenings. In fact, I've got here a poster from the time. Jive fans, this is it. Meet the Beatles every Saturday at Aintree Institute. Yes, Paul, John, George and Pete will be playing for you exclusively. If you know your Beatles history, Pete Best preceded Ringo Starr. You must be there too. Admission four shillings. That's 20p. All right. They would have played more often, but on their 52nd appearance, the manager of the Aintree Institute paid the Beatles their evening fee of 15 shillings in coppers and coins. There was no note there. And Brian Epstein, the manager, said, I thought it was disrespectful to the Beatles. I felt that if one was to be a manager, then one should fight for absolute courtesy towards one's artists. And I know William Hartley would have agreed with that because he treated his employees properly and looked after them. And he would have been pleased that Brian Epstein looked after his employees in the same way. He was also a benefactor of the theological college that trained the primitive Methodist ministers. He was vice president of the British and Foreign Bible Society and he attached huge importance to the teachings of the Bible. And so uh, he wanted the people training to be ministers to have a thorough grounding in it. And he wanted the training period extended from two to three years to ensure the quality was there. And he offered to pay for the additional accommodation and facilities because it would involve increased numbers. But again, resistance. Not everyone saw the need for three years instead of two. And he had to really push hard 
to push this through. But eventually he did succeed. He seemed to have vision beyond what other people had. Another cause that was very close to his heart was the fight against sickness and disease. And he gave huge amounts of money for the construction of hospitals and medical research. One day in 1897, he read a report in the Cole newspaper about ways of commemorating Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. And he wrote to the mayor and said, I'll offer to build and furnish a cottage hospital to mark the occasion. But he made it a condition that others would contribute to this. He would meet all the building costs and all the things that needed to go in it, but he insisted that the community pay for its running costs because at the time there was no NHS. It was accepted and planning went ahead. In his address at the laying of the foundation stone, he said, the teaching of Jesus Christ was that those who turned up at the top owed a great debt and by a portion of their money, knowledge and time, they should redeem this debt for the benefit of those who were less well endowed. He also funded new botanical laboratories at Liverpool University because he was very impressed by their research into the medicinal uh, properties of plants. And at the opening ceremony, he said how uplifting it was to be involved with organisations like the Botanical Institute and he said no doubt mindful of all the pressures he was under in business that he found it liberating to have an outlet from the commercial into the distinctly Christian atmosphere and he said a successful businessman needed some corrective, some safety valve some definite means of escape into the larger life of the higher world as a public benefactor whose generosity was widely known, he received countless requests for financial help. He gave each one careful and prayerful consideration. He really thought about each one because he said, I am dealing with the Lord's money, not with mine. He simply saw himself as a steward. He also felt that giving money was not enough. You don't just give and then hit and run. You leave the organisation that you've helped, you have to remain involved with it. You have to show you're interested. You attend meetings. He would very often inspect the quality of the bricks that were being used in some of the buildings that he'd paid for to go up. But he also gave anonymously. He had a network of trusted friends whose job it was to tell him about cases of individual need. Not big need, but individual people. And, for example, he paid for 500 blankets to be given to the poor of St. Helens during the miners' strike so that they had some heat. He gave money to the station master at Aintree Station because the man couldn't afford to buy school books for his son. He also paid a widow's funeral expenses. All these needs were brought to his attention by trusted friends. And he never questioned their judgment. The only question he ever asked was, is the amount enough? Am I giving enough to make sure that you know, they were being properly looked after? All the time he's giving and giving, but his company is growing and growing. And in 1901, because the reputation of his jam had now spread throughout the south of England, 
as well as the north, he opened a factory in London. And he said, the supreme object will be to turn out the purest and best article which the most advanced science and art of preserve making can command. Hartley's makes only one quality, the best. Incredibly, he made very little use of advertising and publicity. He didn't need to. And when he employed a new salesman, the salesman wrote to him asking if he could have a sample of the company's products so that he could take them out and show people. And Hartley wrote back, Dear Sir, the name is the sample. Now that wasn't arrogance. It was an accepted fact that Hartley's made the best jam. The more money he made, the more he gave away. And by 1908, he was recognised as one of the country's leading philanthropists. And he was knighted by King Edward VII in recognition of the many princely acts of beneficence and philanthropy rendered by Sir William to his country. Colne was particularly proud of him. He was the first ever person from Colne to get a knighthood. And a year later, they made him a free man of the borough of Colne. He was also received the top honour in the Primitive Methodist Church when he was named President of the Conference. In 1912, a tragedy occurred that plunged Colne into grief. On the 15th of April, the Titanic sank after hitting an iceberg on its maiden voyage across the Atlantic. Among the 1,517 dead was a native of Colm, 33-year-old Wallace Hartley. Now, although William was not related to Wallace Hartley, he felt, along with the people of Colm, a, personal, a sense of personal loss. He was one of us. Now, he was a devout Christian. He was the leader of the eight-member band on the ship. And as soon as he realised the ship was sinking... He assembled his musicians to play cheerful tunes on deck to calm and comfort the passengers. And the band played continuously for two hours until the very end. When the ship began to tilt to begin its final descent, Wallace thanked his fellow musicians and released them from duty. As they walk away, he struck up the opening notes of the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. They turned back and joined him and then they were washed away now the story of his bravery in the face of death inspired newspaper headlines worldwide and nearer my God to thee symbolized light in the midst of darkness and it was played at funerals and memorial services for those who had died in the tragedy ten days after the sinking Wallace's body with his violin case strapped to it and that, by the way, was auctioned for nearly a million pounds just recently. It was authenticated to be his. It was recovered by a search ship. His body was brought back to Colne for burial, and his funeral became the focus of national grief and international attention. 40,000 lined the streets. Now, the population of Colne is about 20,000, so it's double the population lined the streets as the cortege was led by several brass bands and made its way through the town. Long before the funeral, Colne Town Council had decided to launch an appeal for funds to erect a memorial to Wallace Hartley in the town. And William immediately stepped up to the plate 
and made a challenge offer which was announced in the Times and it read Sir W.P. Hartley who is a native of Colne has promised to contribute a sum equal to 10% of the total amount subscribed towards the town's memorial to the bandmaster. The amount was raised and his 10% of that amount was the biggest single donation by any person. Two years after the Titanic tragedy, the First World War broke out. Almost immediately, David Lloyd George, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, formed a small group of the best business brains in the country to advise him on financial matters. And William Hartley was one of those. His business did not escape the devastating impact of the war. His production costs soared. Sugar was in short supply. Its cost escalated. The same applied to fruit. Quantities were greatly reduced because the government said we need to turn the fruit farms into more important food crops like wheat for bread and so on. So there was a shortage of that. And there was also a labour shortage due to enlistment in the forces. Despite all this, the public noticed that Hartley's Jam maintained its pre-war quality and the prices were not raised. In running his business, the principles he operated in peacetime were intact during wartime. And he said, we were resolved. I was very firm on it myself, not to make profit out of national necessities. So, that was amazing. He also continued his philanthropic work. He made generous donations to hospitals during the war and to bodies such as the Red Cross. And he gave financial support to the families of any of his employees who were in the forces. And Martha, his wife, personally delivered envelopes containing money to those families. But the strain of the war years took a great toll on his health. By 1919, he was suffering angina attacks at the slightest exertion. He was offered the position of mayor of Colm that year, but obviously declined on medical grounds. And because of his health, it was decided to move from his grand house on Lord Street in Southport to a more modest one some distance away in the Birkdale district. Because his son-in-law, John Hyam, was now taking over the running of the Aintree Works and his, his son was helping out in London, he had more time for his philanthropic work. In 1921, he donated a site for the Liverpool Maternity Hospital and gave a huge sum towards the cost of building it. Now, two very important people were born there. One, John Lennon. The other, Mike Lupson. And they owe a big thank you to William Hartley. The same year, he paid for the erection of a new hospital in Colm because the first one he built would become too small, and it was named after him the Hartley Hospital. And in his address, he said, everything known to medical science will be provided in it, and nothing will be left undone to make it complete and up-to-date in every particular. He followed the building of that hospital very closely in the way I said. He would inspect to see everything was going well, but he didn't live to see it finished. In 1922, his health problems caught up with him. He went to bed on 24th of October and told his daughter Christiana he felt unwell. She was the only one of his daughters not married, and she was running the household. She checked on him three times in the night, 
and was worried that he was fading. But when he woke up in the morning, he felt quite chirpy, felt better, and said he was going to go and visit the works in Aintree. But he never got there, because he got out of bed, suffered a massive heart attack, and died. He was 76. His funeral service took place three days later at the Primitive Methodist Church in Southport, where he'd worshipped, and which was known as the Jam Chapel, because he'd built it. After the service, the funeral procession made its way 50 miles by road back to Colne, and he was buried in Trawden Cemetery, which overlooks the town of Colne and the hills. And he was laid to rest there with his parents and his 19-month-old daughter, Martha. The flag at Colne Town Hall was flown at half-mast, and as the procession made its way through town, all the blinds were drawn and the shops were closed. During the interment in the cemetery, a service was held simultaneously at the Aintree Primitive Methodist Church, attended by the many grateful employees for whom he'd done so much. The next day, Sunday, there were memorial services were held in Cold and Southport, but in churches and chapels across the country, congregations paused respectfully to reflect on his life and passing. It made national news when he died. Finally, how would he like to be remembered? Well, I suppose in today's materialistic world, where success is the measure of a person's worth, he would be applauded for establishing a brand that made him enormously wealthy. That would be seen as success. But he himself would have dismissed this instantly, because he did not consider material prosperity to have any bearing on a person's intrinsic value nor did he say was it a guarantee of happiness he said this thank God happiness is from within not from without it is what a man is and not what a man has and he was careful to apply this standard of what a man is to himself and he said I am much exercised as to whether I am such a disciple of Jesus Christ that my work people my business friends my neighbours and my family can constantly see the spirit of the master in my actions. So then, what was success as he saw it? And I'm going to finish now with his own definition. My last word must be that we followers of Jesus Christ must carry into our life his spirit and teaching. And that whatever we think Jesus Christ would have done had he been in our place, whether we are employers or employed, whether we are in business or out of business, that we are compelled to do. This is the secret of all true success, the consecration of ourselves to him who loved us and laid down his life for us. that was one giant please tune in next time for another one it's goodbye from me peter lubson